I'm certainly not the first to say, but you can't say it enough, charge more. Most people just do not charge enough for access to their knowledge. Well, hello and welcome to the Leverage 3 podcast. This is a show that helps you leverage the talent and tactics of high performers. I'm Craig Shoemaker and today's guest is Chris Ferdinandi. Chris creates courses and workshops on modern front-end development. That's over 25 courses, three workshops, and a thriving community. And it turns out he loves pirates, puppies, and Pixar movies and lives near a rural area and horse farms in Massachusetts. Chris, welcome to the show. Craig, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is, uh, this is kind of the second sort of uh, the other side of the coin of conversations mm-hmm. that we've been having. You join me on a developer podcast that I have. And now what I'm really hoping to do is sort of dive into your experience that you've had creating courses, launching products, and, and this whole world that is your business, essentially. So I know you started out in HR. Yeah. So how in the world does one go from HR to being like a, a hotshot web developer course creator and, and exist yeah, in that Yeah, it was kind of a weird journey. Um, I, uh, I had a lot of, I kind of fell into HR and I had a lot of strong... As you do. Yeah, I don't know if anybody really is like, <laughs> I want to be an HR professional when I grow up. But I ended up in HR and I had a lot of really strong opinions about it. So I had, I had an HR blog I had started. And I wanted to have a little bit more look in control over the look and feel of it. So I started teaching myself HTML and CSS and WordPress flavored PHP. Um, and I kind of, I started looking for ways to do some of that stuff in my day job because I found it really interesting. So I became known in, in my company as the HR guy who knows tech, even though I was just like, it was like the bare minimum, but like right. the bar was very low. So, um, <laughs> so I'm working in the training and development organization, and I have this boss who's not really from the corporate world, and he's really into this idea of like experimenting with new ways to teach people that don't involve just sitting in a classroom for eight hours and talking to people. Uh, and so we started kicking around this idea of like, what if learning was more like YouTube, where you just pull up some short videos when you have something you want to know, and then you get on with your life, which does not seem revolutionary right now, but in like a corporate environment 10 or 15 years ago was a novel idea. So um, we, uh, you know, we go and we talk to our IT department about some prototype we want to build. I'm like, oh yeah, no, no, we can, uh, we, we can do that. It'll take a year. It'll cost $100,000. Probably won't look like you want it to. So we're like, well, that's not going to work. So we go to an agency and they're like, oh no, we can do that. No problem. Yeah, six weeks, we'll be in and out. It's only going to cost $500,000. And we're like, well, that's way too much for like a prototype. So my boss looks at me and he goes, hey, you know code, can you build it? I looked him dead in the eye and I said, I absolutely cannot. I have no idea how to do this level of code. <laughs> and he, he asked me, this is the question that completely changed my career. He goes, can you learn? And I said, I don't think so, but I'll try. And I just went and dug into the bowels of Stack Overflow for like two weeks and tried to figure out how to hack WordPress into an app platform, which again is not like uncommon today. Plenty of people do that. I am self-taught and had no idea what I was doing. So it, it, some of the worst code I ever wrote, but I got something stood up and I was hooked. And that was the moment I started this journey to changing careers and becoming a web developer. Um, and I, as someone who had been blogging about HR stuff for a while, my natural tendency was to just start writing about all the code stuff I was learning. Um, just share it mostly for my own reference so that when I forgot something I'd already learned, I could just go back and look at, look at what <laughs> right. I wrote. 
But yeah, over yeah. time, it kind of morphed into this thing where I started becoming known as the person who was writing about how to do all this jQuery stuff without jQuery. And I'd always known I wanted to have my own business. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should just like put together a course. I see people do that. So I put together a course on web performance. It tanked. Um, I put together a course on career stuff for web developers and you know, kind of how you know, everything I'd learned from my journey making that transition. And before I made that transition, I used to teach software developers career stuff. That course tanked. And then I started working with a business coach who was like, oh, I know you, you're the vanilla JS guy. And I'd love to say that was the light bulb moment for me, but it was eight months later after I tried a bunch of other stuff and then looked at my <laughs> analytics and saw that that was literally the only thing people were reading my site for. I was like, oh, I should do a course on that. And that's when things started to really uh, kind of take off for me. Hey, do you want to get parts of these interviews that aren't available anywhere else? Where you can join the Leverage 3 email list and get access to exclusive content just for subscribers. So go on over to leverage3podcast.com and sign up today. So let's dive into this a little bit because yeah. I think people often have an idea of what they want to come to market with. Mm -hmm. They have a perception of who they are as a creator or as a teacher or, or, or whatever. But Yep. What you're saying was like, you were directionally correct. Like people like wanted stuff that you said, right? But it took a <laughs> while for you to figure out based off of the data where you really needed to hone in on your, your, uh, your efforts, right? Yeah. And it is very much, you, you kind of, you nailed it, the identity thing, right? So I, I learned JavaScript out of necessity because all of the jobs that I was applying for either wanted someone who was like a straight up designer, or if you were a front end developer, someone who knew JS. Uh, the whole like you just do CSS HTML thing didn't have the level of respectability that it does today. Yeah. So in my head, I was someone who like was responsive web design and performance and JavaScript was kind of just this add-on piece that, you know, was maybe part of the performance piece, but wasn't part of my core identity. And so it took a lot of mental rewiring to get myself to focus like mostly on that and like really niche down on that. The niching was terrifying. I was really, really legitimately scared to do it. It felt like giving up a piece of my like professional identity. And the analytics were what finally convinced me to do it. I like, I just looked at what were the 10 most viewed pages on my site. One of them was home, one of them was about, and the other eight were how to do jQuery thing without jQuery. And I was like, well, that's pretty, <laughs> that's right. pretty clear. So, yeah. Awesome. So in, in terms of metrics, like you were just looking at like views on the page or, or were you looking at other signals as well? No, it was, um, it, it was, it was really, it was specifically views on the page. So I went into, um, I went to my Google analytics and just pulled up, you know, sorted by number of views and of the 10 most viewed things on my site, one was the homepage, one was the about page, and the other eight were very specifically around JavaScript topics. Whereas I had been right. writing about a wide range of things and everything that people were reading was just this one thing. That one thing, yeah. right. All right, so tell me about this, this kind of emotional journey that you went through, because I think when yeah. it comes to, to niching down, it's, yeah. it is terrifying for people because they're like, the whole world's is yep. potentially someone that I could do business with. Why do I want to exclude from someone yep. from that party, right? Yep. How did that happen? Yeah, so this was a, an extremely scary thing for me. It took easily six months to a year just to mentally get myself comfortable doing it. Um, it felt super uncomfortable. 
I always viewed myself as a technical generalist. Um, and I think a lot of folks do, right? Like I, yeah. I really think one of the things that attracts a lot of people to this particular field is that you can do a lot of different things. And as you mentioned, I could sell to a lot of different people, a lot of different things. Um, niching was hands down, like one of the, probably one of the two most impactful things I did. Yeah. So that process was, it was me, I've originally just me getting cognizant about writing more around JavaScript topics and less on other topics. And I still wrote about other topics from time to time, but, you know, becoming a little bit more deliberate about just, you know, trying to write more on the topics that seem to really hit. And then it's somewhere along the line, I started to feel a lot more comfortable with the idea. And that's when I went and changed my profile information from Chris is a web developer to I'm the vanilla JS. I just decided to own it. Um, you just gave yourself a title and you... you I just gave... Yeah. I, I yeah. remember asking... I had a business coach at the time. I remember asking him, like, you know, how would you get people to start referring to you as a thing? And he's like, just call yourself that everywhere. Your website, social media, just do it. And it, I just... I did enough podcast guest appearances where I got introduced as the vanilla JS guy that people started right. referring to me as the vanilla JS guy. I eventually hit a point a year or two in where I was like, okay, I'm known enough about this that I can now write about some of those other tangential things and then bring it full circle and still not lose kind of that, that niche or focus. So I don't think you, you have to be like 100% in on that one topic to be niched on that topic. And actually, so this brings up a, a thing. You mentioned the whole, like, I could sell to anybody. Um, the thing I've personally found about niching is that it's not the only thing that you teach. It's the hook that gets people in and then you can start to circle around some related things. So like just at the risk of getting a little too technical for a second, my hook is JavaScript, which is a very big thing on the internet right now. But once I have people in, I start, start to talk about other related topics like accessibility or some of the other pieces of front-end development or sometimes even like some back-end mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, you know, so if you're considering niching or you're afraid of niching, you don't have to lose that professional identity, or at least I, I didn't have to. It just, it becomes the kind of the, the hook that gets people in the door and then you can, you know, show right. them the rest of what you can do. So was there a line in the sand that you feel like you, you drew to say, okay, now this is who I am? Or was it, you kind of turn around after a few months and you realize, oh, okay, well, this is where I'm at. Yeah, I think it's more more of the whole like you're not the same person you were a decade ago. Like you you change uh, without necessarily noticing it's happening for me, anyways. So there was like a deliberate I'm going to focus on this more, um, and then at some point, without me really being aware of it, it just became an internalized part of you know my identity right. professionally or what I do. Uh, um, there was never like this like hard line where I'm like, yes, I am here now. I've made it or, right, yeah. you know, this is me now. Um, it just kind of, kind of happens or at least it did for me. I don't want to generalize for everybody. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's all you can draw from, right? Yeah. So there's this incredible journey that people in your position take, right? So you have this corporate job, you have a family, you have a mortgage, mm -hmm. I imagine you have a set of wheels that you drive around, you know, yep. and so you, you have these things that you're responsible for. Like, tell me about that, that point at which you decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to go independent and I'm going to go all in yep. on my, my courses. I potentially went a lot longer than I think the typical person does. So I had a, um, I had a, a friend who's also in this space, describe it as a, like a five-year journey. So I 
I was doing this on the side while I had a corporate job for maybe six years, possibly seven. Mm -hmm. The way it worked for me, right, was so once I had found that, that set of course topics that hit, it was like, oh, cool. We have, um, you know, we, we have money for like a, a, a short vacation, right? And then like the year after that, it's like, oh, we've, you know, we, we can take a, like a really nice vacation this year. It was on top of just like the <laughs> right. normal salary. And then the year after that, it's like, oh, we could, we could do a home. We've been wanting to finish our basement. We have, we have the money to do that now. And then at some point, it was like starting to compete with my day job salary, right? So it was, um, it was like, oh, wow, I'm making more than I did when I started working professionally just from this, like, this side hustle thing. That's cool. Right. And then I, the point where I, I flipped the switch was when I was making about as much as I was making in my day job from the course stuff. Because of COVID, we really weren't like going anywhere or doing anything. So we had built up a huge runway of savings, which depending on your mm. risk aversion, you may or may not need this. But I was like, all right, cool. If this tanks, we've got like two years of safety net <laughs> before we're like totally right. in the red and we're in, we're in a bad way. So because, um, you know, the things, the things you need to account for, like you make this in salary from your company, but they also subsidize hopefully a lot of your health insurance and... Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of taxes they pay that you're then responsible for when you go solo, you know, just all that right. stuff. Um, so I knew, you know, just that alone wouldn't be enough. But um, so I want to say it was maybe five years of doing it before I officially was like, all right, I'm ready to just go full, full in on this. And I know people who have gone a lot longer who never quit. They just always have it as like really nice side income. And right. I know people who have quit a lot earlier and then they just hustle their tails off to make it work. And a lot of it also yeah. depends on kind of what your life is like beforehand. Like if you have a big house or multiple cars or like certain kind of lifestyle expectations around vacations and things like that, your, your runway before you, you leave may be a lot longer than other people's. Like we love Disney. So, you know, that's a, <laughs> Disney, not, Disney, not cheap. So. <laughs> I'm surprised right? I haven't seen you there. <laughs> Maybe someday. So t 25 courses, three workshops, you, like, you have all this stuff. You've been through the, the terrifying and joy-inducing process of launching digital projects over and over again. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yep. First, can you give yeah. me some lessons that you've learned over the years of things that you make sure that you just don't do anymore? Oh, things I don't do. Yeah. So hmm. one of the things I, I definitely don't do anymore is build out a whole course, just the whole thing and launch it without validating the idea in some way first. I did that multiple times. Sometimes it works out well. Sometimes you <laughs> just have absolute flops. So, um, so I've stopped doing that. And there are a few different ways you can, you can kind of work around that that we can dig into if you want, but that's, that's one of the big things I don't. And then the other, the other big thing I don't do anymore is um, make courses targeted at more senior developers. I've just found that the amount of effort they take to create and the general market for those, at least within my audience, just isn't there. Mm. Um, so I end up spending a lot of time and then... Um, the like the economic benefit is a lot lower than courses that are oriented more towards beginners at least for my particular audience market what have you so let's talk about idea validation for a second like there's a thousand different ways you could do it so what 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 sort of techniques have you found that you like yeah so there are two that work really well for me the 
first one is um, I very early on, like one of the things that you got when you bought my courses was access to a private Slack community. And so I now have like a thousand people plus sitting in a Slack that when I have an idea, I can put out there and just gauge general reaction. So I don't ask, would you pay X for this thing? I'm like, hey, I'm working on this thing. Is this something that, you know, anybody's struggling with? Or I think a better way to approach it is like, hey, what are, you know, what are some of the things you're really like struggling with professionally right now? Or what's something you really want to learn this year? And when you get a bunch of people kind of riffing on each other, sometimes trends emerge, sometimes they don't. So that's one way. The other thing um, I've used to great effect is pre-sales. Um, so I will write out the whole sales page, uh, a rough outline of what's going to be in there, put together like a, a graphic, make it look really nice and pop mm-hmm. up a sales page and announce it as a pre-sale at like a, let's say, 30% discount if you buy it before it launches. Right. And the downside of that is that if you get a bunch of people who buy it, you, ha- you have to build it now, right? Um, <laughs> and if you get halfway through and you're like, oh, this sucks, you're still like, you, you got to see it through. But um, the down or the, the upside of that is there have been a few times where I've done that and you know, I've gotten like one or two sales and I've been like, well, I'm not going to waste my time building this. And you just, you refund those people. You tell them that, right. you know, you've changed business direction and you decided not to pursue the project. Here's your money back. Thank you very much. Um, and you lose a few cents on like, you know, the credit card fees and refunds, but yeah. you save a ton of time and not building a thing. No one was going to buy. Exactly. Um, yeah. So I used to do that a ton. Now that I have a much more sizable Slack community and get like a really nice feedback loop, I do it a lot less. Uh, but there was a time where I, okay. I used to do that for pretty much everything I launched. Validated a ton of ideas, discarded probably even, even more that just weren't going to be worth the time or effort. So just out of curiosity, how many times were you in a situation where you had to refund money because the demand wasn't there? That happened... I want to say like three or four times, three or four times. And it was never and there's a, a big million deal. different reasons of why something couldn't, you know, didn't pan out, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's yeah. always positioned as, you know, you're buying this now, you won't get it for a while. And, mm-hmm. you know, so when I turn around, I'm like, Hey, I'm so sorry. It's not going to get built. Here's your money. I've never had a single person get annoyed about that. Um, right. uh, you know, the, the, I guess the upside is when you do that, it's usually because almost no one pre-ordered it. And so there's not a lot of people to get mad at you. At there's that not a lot point, of hard conversations know? to be had at that point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So so, is, so you go to pre-launch uh, or pre-sell, I should say. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, you know, you figure out in terms of your audience size and, and the signal that you're looking for, mm-hmm. like, is it a percentage based off of like you said, okay, I have a thousand people on Slack. If I get 10 people to raise their hand and say they want this, then it's good to go. Like what's the tipping point for you to say, okay, this seems like a good idea. Oh, you know, it's, just, I've never really been like a hard numbers person. Um, this is such a, probably a terrible way to run a business, but I'm very much like a vibes <laughs> kind of guy. So right. I, I don't know how to describe it other than I just, there's kind of this sense you get where you either you get what feels like a lot of excitement or you don't. Or with the pre-sales, um, you know, I, I forget. This was back, you know, I used to do a lot more of this when I had, it, this was before, like I you know, quit my day job for this. But if I sold a thousand mm-hmm. copies of something before I built it, I'm like, all right, cool. This is worth me investing the time to finish. You know, whereas if I sold two like or three, agree, I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, no, it's not. <laughs> 
not not worth the effort. But it was never like I never had like a hard cutoff okay. in my mind. I do remember once though I created a workshop and I did like five thousand dollars in pre-sales and I'm like, oh my God, I think I have I think I have a hit on my hands. And I did. Um I think that that one's probably made me like a hundred thousand dollars over like the lifetime of running it. It's like this repeat workshop. It's wow. like my my biggest moneymaker. So let's talk about that for a second. So so tell me like what what are the bright spots about that workshop? So in terms of you know, leaving the content aside, what do you oh, think? Sure. Is it basically the value that people get out of it? Is it the offer? Is it the length? Like, w- what do you think makes that work? So uh, most of my courses are self-paced. My workshops are not. They are time-bound and cohort-based. So mm-hmm. we have a start date. We have an end date. Uh, people get to keep, like, they can access all their stuff after the end date. But uh, the idea there is that Rather than just throwing you into some self-paced thing that you may or may not finish, that you're kind of on your own with, you're going to have a really structured learning plan. It's rather than most of my things tend to be really narrowly focused, my workshops tend to be a little bit more broad. So we're going to pull in a bunch of different things and they're project focused. So rather than learning about a topic, we're just building stuff and the learning is kind of a, a, like a byproduct, you know? So gotcha. they are, uh, I have them like set up as like a, a drip style, I guess might be the right way to describe it. So every other day, you're going to yeah. get a couple of lessons and a project to work on. And then on the in-between days, I walk through my solution and some of the common issues that I see students typically have with this thing. And then every week or two, we have a live office hours where you can ask questions and dig into stuff, get code reviews. So that format appeals really well to two groups of people. So people Mm -hmm. who feel like they really need that accountability to finish. And then the other subset is I run into a lot of developers who are like, I've memorized all this stuff (laughs) and I feel like a deer in headlights when it comes time to sit down and start a project from scratch. I just don't know what to do. Like I have, if you showed me code, you showed me code, I understand what's happening. But if you ask me to write it for myself, I'm lost. And uh, so it really, it solves that problem um, in a way that I think a lot of courses don't. Uh, One of the reasons why it's made so much money in addition to, I I think, just being really good, it's also very expensive. So, um, you know, 10 people enrolling in this is worth a lot more to me than dozens of people buying my self-paced stuff. It just, it sells for a lot more. So even if I have far fewer people enroll in it, it's still a much more lucrative kind of thing for me. It's a lot more hands-on. So I think the value is a lot higher for, for students as well. It just really helps things stick a lot better. It right. did so well that I ended up creating a follow-up workshop. So if you, you attended this, this is like the next, kind of the next step. And I think I had, I've had around right. like 50% re-enrollment, you know, so you go through the first one and then you, you go into the second one. And then one other thing I did that I thought was bonkers, but it works is if you attended the first one and you feel like you didn't really like, it didn't really quite land the way you wanted it to, you can go through it again for like a 10th of the original enrollment cost. And so I've had a shocking number of people re-sign up, go through the whole workshop. They already did again. They still have access to just wow. to do it live again with another group of people and like reinforce yeah, that learning. For the accountability. Yeah. And usually I and make that offer if I've made updates. So, you know, you run it a few times, some technologies change, or you come up with some ideas on how you could improve it based on student feedback. So you update it and you say, hey, like mm-hmm. there's an updated version. If you want to go through it again, it'll only cost you 99 bucks. And you get like a shocking number of people who are like, yes, here's my money. Nice. Okay, so... Y- 
pricing, I think, is a such a fascinating topic when we get into to these yes. different areas, right? And so you said this is yeah. expensive, right? And so that's in relation to what? So like, do you, do you mind talking all. about price to. and kind of how that yeah. plays out? Pri pricing is absolutely a dark art. And it's one of those things that I think a lot of people feel uncomfortable charging meaningful money for their stuff, because why should anybody listen to me? Especially if you're self-taught in whatever your, your field is, or right. um, you're not kind of a, a nationally renowned expert or whatever, right? But um, so I started off just selling eBooks and I priced them at $29. And then I increased them to 39. And then I had a bunch of people who were like, I'd rather watch this. Do you have video versions? And I'm like, no, I don't. And I probably won't because I hate making videos. And then I had enough people ask me that I'm like, <laughs> ah, fine, but I'm going to charge a lot of money to arm. make it worth it for me. So I was like, all right, it's the same content. It's $79. And people were like, yes, here you go. And then at some point I raised my prices again. So the eBooks were 49 and the videos were 95. But if you bought both together, it was only $99. So for $5 more, you get both formats. The okay. workshops started off at $399. And then there was like a year and a half where I just raised them by 100 bucks every time I ran a session. So they're now at $995 per workshop. And I do an early bird sale the first okay. week that I open up registration for 40% off. And I would say like a good majority of my purchases or registrations come during that window. So the average person is not paying. Nine ninety five. They're paying like five ninety seven or something like that, which is still right. a lot more than I originally sold them okay. for, and it's still a good chunk of money. Which again gets into the psychology of pricing. So yeah. when I first launched my courses, I had a single big. It was like ditching jQuery was the name of it, right? And it had everything you needed to know about leaving jQuery to do plain old JavaScript, and it was like one hundred and thirty nine dollars, and it sold maybe six copies. More than I'd sold any of my other courses, but it did, you know, it was like not a, not a flop, but it was not flying off the shelves either. And then I was like, ah, oh, is this just too expensive? So I took it and I broke it into like five or six smaller individual guides. And I priced them so that if you bought all of them together as a bundle, it cost you $139 or you could buy them individually for, you know, like whatever was like 30% off was like, well, you got if you bought them as a bundle. I, I suck at math, but sure. it was yeah. crazy. Like, I'm not. I'm not joking. When I, like the first week I did that, I sold twice as many as I had sold in the two months before with just the one thing. It was the same content, same exact price, packaged differently. And wow. uh, that was the moment I got right. hooked on bundles and like discounts. People get really excited about discounts. Related to that, like another giant, like 25% of my sales happened in the two week period between Thanksgiving and like Cyber Monday. Like I start selling the week of Thanksgiving, America, mm. Thanksgiving. Uh, and then, you know, through Cyber Monday or Cyber Week or whatever they call it now, I do like at least a quarter of my income just in that, that two week period. Cause it's like 50% off. I throw in bonuses and, and all this stuff. Yeah. Pricing, pricing is weird. right. So in terms, in terms of your launch and, and, uh, the, how long are the offers available? So are you keeping your cart open for, a full week? Is it five days? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I have, um, I have for, for my courses are evergreen. So you can, you can sign up for those whenever. Gotcha. And I usually do like 30% off the week or two after like a new course launches. And then it's just back to regular price after that. 
For my workshops, so those live-ish cohort-based things, I have a three-week sales cycle. It used to be longer and then it's gotten like narrower over time. And I now have like a launch email sequence that I use every single time that converts really well. Week one is the early bird discount. So you get 40% off if you register that week. And I have a kind of a series of emails I send out to my list up to and including like the, it's like, hey, it's open. Here's what it's all about. You know, just quick reminder, sale ends this weekend. And then like on the last day, it's like, hey, it's your last chance. Don't miss out. And you usually see a spike in sales on day one and on the Sunday before the sale ends. And then the middle is kind of a lull. (laughs) And then I go into week two where it's just regular pricing and almost no one buys then. But every now and then I'll have someone whose company is paying for it that will just drop full price during that week. And then the week before it runs... I have my like last chance sale where you can get 25% off if you register. Okay. And that's another kind of three email sequence where I was like, hey, you know, if, if you still wanted to join and that, you know, I, I have like my email marketing is set up so that if you've already registered, you're not getting these emails. Right. So like you don't feel crappy about yeah. like <laughs> pricing and that kind of thing. Right. But uh, yeah. And then no email sequence attached, but I will actually keep registration open now the week after or the week it has started running with a discount available because I every time without fail, I used to get emails from people who are like, oh no, I meant to register and I forgot and you're three days in. And like there's really no reason they can't stop at three days in. So I'm I'm going to right. if you want to pay me, sure. Absolutely. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um so rather than now having to manually send people like a purchase link. I just keep the registration open for an extra week. Gotcha. And I usually get like a So at that point, week. are you removing bonuses or anything like that? Like, are, is there a consequence for not making it in time? Or is it just basically, this is the flow that... Yeah, no. So the, that last or that first week that the workshop is actually running. So like those super late stragglers, uh, they still get 25% off. They mm-hmm. don't get the full like early bird discount. And I, I probably could pull that away. I've never thought to experiment with that. It's one of those like good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of kind of things for me. Yeah. One of, the, one of the reasons I harp on the like early bird discount and then last chance though is to create that sense of urgency mm-hmm. so that you do. And I think it really plays out in the fact that like, I'd say a majority of the registrations happen on the last day of the early bird sale, right? right? You're about to lose this big bonus. Yeah. Yeah. So So what other sort of like ideas have you had or different models or approaches have you like tried in this realm as well? Yeah. So I am one of the things I just in the last couple of weeks, I launched this new thing, Lean Web Club, leanwebclub.com. That's like a subscription offering. So I've had a lot of really good success with the buy once own forever kind of model of courses and workshops. Um, And I've really resisted doing anything subscription based because you read about it and people are like, oh, you got to worry about like, you know, churn and total lifetime value, just all these things that I haven't had to like deal with. Um, But one of the things that started to become, you know, kind of apparent to me over the last year or so is like one of the, the challenges with the buy once own forever model is you need to either be regularly creating new things for your existing customers to buy, or you need to bring in new customers to buy the things you already have, or you effectively have, you know, it's like, it's like a different kind of churn almost, right? right? I've started to hit that now where I've, I've covered so many of the bases with the like 
basics for beginners kind of stuff. And as I mentioned, like that's the audience I tend to have the best, the best luck with that, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've been like, okay, now I need to start like maybe expanding and bringing in new people. And that's like a whole different skill set than what got me to where I am today. Uh, so I decided to experiment with an all-you-can-eat subscription model where for, for a fixed fee every month, you can get access to literally everything that I've ever made. Uh, and so I'm literally still in the process of filling that with my back catalog <laughs> of stuff. But right now it's got over 400 tutorials and learning paths and projects that people can work on kind of tucked in there. And it is still very much an experiment. So like I'm not kind of here to be like, this is, this is the future. It's kind of this interesting thing where it could very easily right, yeah. completely cannibalize all of the sales of my <clears throat> buy once products, but not actually make up the income I make from those. And that would be a very bad thing. So, you know, so I'm, I'm, right. <laughs> I'm currently in the, let's see so, if this yeah. works or not <laughs> phase of that. But I've tried various things like this in the past and never quite found that price demand sweet spot. But I think I may have hit it with this one. We'll see. And I can dive into details if you want. We can just kind of leave this as an interesting footnote and move on if you'd prefer. Um, but I did kind of want to mention that it's like a thing. So what's different? You said you tried this in, in like different incarnations in the past. What's giving you signals that you think it might work this time? Yeah. So I have... Um, so the I guess it's important to tee up what I've tried in the past has been expensive all you can eat options. So like I, you know, I see things like, you know, I guess on the corporate end, you've got like Treehouse or LinkedIn Learning that charge $29 a month. I've also seen individual developers who are a little bit more narrowly focused charge a similar price point. Mm -hmm. Anytime I've tried that, my audience has always been like, nah, I'd rather just pay more upfront and own it forever. Like I don't, I have too many subscriptions already. I don't want that. Right. I have tried a subscription offering that is much more heavily focused on community. So, you know, you pay this amount and you get access to a developer community. You can ask questions whenever you want. Stack Overflow, you don't have to deal with that like hostile Stack Overflow thing. You just come here, right? That hasn't done really well either. So what I did with this one as a weird experiment is I decided to go with like Netflix style might as well pricing where it's like, it's so low. It just becomes like, ah, why the hell not? I don't really think about it every month when it renews. Whereas like at $29 a month, every month you're like, Am I still getting enough value out of this that I want to pay this? Right, right. I am now charging $9 a month or $90 a year for access to my full catalog of stuff. And my hope is that I've already validated one aspect of that, which is that it's low enough that I get a high volume of people signing up because like it's the barrier buy. to trying is yeah. really low. Yeah, it's an impulse buy. It's the difference between like, you know, like a pack of gum, not really a pack of gum. They're obviously a lot cheaper than that. But yeah, it's an impulse buy. Right, right. And then the, I think the thing I don't have enough data on, I just need more time, is to see like what the average lifetime value of a customer is. At what point do they decide, all right, even $9 a month is too much. I'm leaving. Yeah. What's different right. about this versus past experiments here is that even at the substantially lower price point, the volume of signups has been so much higher that it has massively eclipsed the revenue that I've made from previous subscription attempts. Like I'm getting so many more subscribers hmm. that the monthly recurring is, is much higher. Interesting. Any previous attempt, it was maybe like four or $500 in, in recurring subscriptions. Whereas now I'm at, I want to say around 2,500 or so monthly recurring revenue from right. this. You know, still obviously not enough to offset 
kind of the courses. Okay. My focus right now is on growing that subscriber base. Uh, this feels like it has a lot more legs than previous previous attempts did. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a big experiment. You're certainly good at taking chances and trying different things. And I, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not. No, it's terrifying. All, everything. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'm like uh, proud and, and delighted uh, for you and in, in everything that that's working out. And I hope you you know continue to have success with. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's a tough nut to crack sometimes. I, <laughs> everything that you've shared is incredible and amazing. And I, I hope people uh, get a ton out of what you've been able to share. So mm-hmm. if you were to leave people with three action items to walk away with, yep. what would you give them? Yeah. So the, the three big ones for me, um, the first one that I'm certainly not the first to say, like, but you can't say it enough, charge more. I know I just contradicted myself with that whole rant on subscription <laughs> models, but if you're selling one-off things, charge more. Most people just do not charge enough for access to their knowledge. I think Amy Hoy was the one who I heard say this, but like the general, if you can charge like somewhere around like $39, $49 to save someone an hour or so of their time, like that's, that's a really good value. The other one is I just, I, and again, nothing groundbreaking here, but I cannot overstate the value of having an email list, you know, people that you can regularly reach out to to let them know about the stuff that you have that may be of interest to them. And I guess related to this, the fastest and best way I have found to grow an email list is to write daily. And I know that sounds like utter madness, but I publish a short thing every single weekday over the course of a year that took my static, hadn't moved from 38 subscribers newsletter up to a thousand people in a year, and then 3,000 after two years, and then 5,000 after three, and now I'm at like 14,000 subscribers. Wow. So yeah, just it's been the single most impactful thing I've ever done for my business. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Now, one of the easiest ways that we can stay in touch is that if you're watching on YouTube, please like this episode and subscribe to the channel if you'd like. And if you're listening to the audio version, rating on your favorite podcast app would mean the absolute world to me. So I'm Craig Shoemaker, and I'll see you again here soon on the Leverage 3 Podcast.